I want to start off, I love, there's a biblical truth that I just kind of want to um, inter- talk about, and it's one that y'all have been doing in life groups, um, but it is talking about the death of Lazarus, and it's specifically, it's from John 11, and it is talking about um, Jesus' interactions with Martha and Mary. Um, and so I, I'm going to read it first. So it says, so, so when Mary, Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she heard this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise and quickly go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother who had come, who would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So what I love about this when we were talking about it before is it talks, it's contrasting, it's showing us Martha and how she interacts with Jesus, and is also showing us Mary and his interaction with her. And so we see, we look at Martha, and Martha's just very matter-of-fact. Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And that's kind of, you, you can almost picture her as being strong. We know she, you know, we know her personality. We feel like it, and some of us even feel like we can, um, we know that personality because we're that, ourselves that way. Um, maybe me. Um, so we know what that response was. And so he's matter of fact with her too. He just, he comes out and he shares truth with her, right? He, he goes right into that truth. In fact, you would, you could even call it a gospel conversation, right? That is where he meets her, but he has a totally different reaction to Mary. Mary, it said, falls at his feet and she is just, she's inconsolable. She is weeping. She is mourning. She is racked with emotion. And she, yes, she does say something, but we know that her reaction is extremely emotional. And rather than looking at her and saying, it's going to be all right, Mary. You know, do you not have any faith? Um, Do you not trust me? Do you not trust the process? Rather than kind of talking to her that way, he reacts the same way. He weeps. I mean, her creator has the same emotion and shares the same emotion with her that she has. And I love that. I absolutely, I I, I love that response. Um, because I think that that is, you know, one of the things that we can take from that is he knew them. Jesus knew Martha. Jesus knew Mary. And he responds to them in a way that is very personal to them. It's in response, perfectly in response to how they've responded to him, but also in keeping with what he knows and how he interacts with them. And to me, that just reminds us that we have to know the people that we're walking alongside. We have to have that foundation that's built so that we can respond the right way. We build, we equip it by making sure we have had conversations with just about life. Um, we don't want to just rush right into the deep things. We want to have a good foundation, a relationship to have those types of discussions. And I think that that's one of the things that we can see here with, with Jesus is he knew them personally and he responded to them personally. 
Um, and as anybody who's trying to walk alongside, that's what we want to do. If they're feeling an emotion, we want to share in that emotion. We don't want to immediately rush in and just tell them, hey, it's going to be okay. You know, you just got to have faith. You got to trust him. You got to trust the process. Yes, those are all truths that we know and that we're praying them, but it can't be our initial response. For me, it can't be that I sweep into fix-it mode and immediately try to fix it. I need to know them personally, and I need to respond the way that they need me to do, just like Jesus did. Um, and that is where I'm really, really excited tonight because we need to connect, and we need to connect on a level that's good for them, what they need for us to do. And Shelly Spence, who's going to talk to us tonight, that is what she's going to help us with. She's going to help us to understand that person that we may be walking alongside to understand the emotions that they may be having, even if they're masked, even if we're not seeing them for, you know, we're not reading it correctly. She's going to help us to understand that, and she's going to help us to respond and to be able to connect with them so that we can do what's best to connect them to the one who is the source of all hope. So I am so excited that you are all here tonight, and I am so excited that Shelly is here with us tonight, too. So I am going gonna, gonna to kick us off with a, a, a little word of prayer, and then, Shelly, I'm going to give this to you and let you wear this. Um, so, dear Heavenly Father, I just um, I thank you so much, dear God, that you, the creator of, of each one of us, you know absolutely everything about us, dear Lord. You have... Um, you know us inside and out, and hopefully we all have personal relationships with you, and we're coming to you with all of the emotions because you can handle all of them, dear Lord, and you want us to feel and to be and to ultimately rely on truth. And so I just thank you that you're that kind of God, dear Lord, and I pray that we would, um, we would follow your lead, dear Lord, that we would look at people and we would respond to people and we would care for people the way that you did. You have set the example for us to follow, and I just pray that you would just be with each one of us, dear Lord, as we also learn tonight to be able to engage, to be able to connect. God, thank you so much for Shelly Spence and her willingness to come and share with us, and thank you for each individual—excuse me, each individual that's here tonight, dear God. Would you just open our hearts and our minds to hear and to absorb all that you would share with us through her? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Try not to pull this thing off the stage. Um, I'm so excited to be here, and I'm so thankful. Um, thankful for the ministry that y'all are doing, or about to do, or preparing to do, or maybe just discerning what the Lord's will is for you in this. Um, my name is Shelly Spence, and I'm a licensed professional counselor and a play therapist. Um, I specialize in trauma and challenging behaviors. I work with teens and tweens and young adults, and absolutely love my job. Um, one new thing that the Lord is really calling me to, which is so fun that Jessica asked me to do this, is um, he's, a new project he's given me is helping to equip churches of all different sizes um, to understand trauma so that they can relate to and connect and minister to people with backgrounds of trauma better and people in crisis. And so when Jessica asked me this, I didn't even have to pray about it. I said, I've already got the talk ready. <laughs> like, here we go. Um, so I'm super excited about this and just all that the Lord is doing in this ministry and through y'all's ministry, current and future. 
Um, I'm married to our high school pastor here at Bellevue. His name is Steve, and I have two daughters who are 15 and 19, um, and that's pretty much me. Um, I have a couple of goals for us tonight that I want to go ahead and just kind of let you know. So we're going to talk about trauma with the intention of fostering connection to, um, to earn the right to disciple, to disciple people. And so the goals that I kind of want to talk about are, first of all, I want to lay a foundation for insight. I want to be able to help you understand how does trauma affect people um, and what it is exactly. <laughs> we hear the word trauma all the time. We hear traumatized. That was traumatizing. And so I want to be able to give us a good definition for that. And then some practical strategies that you can connect with, but also empower the women and the, and the men, the mothers and fathers that you serve. So anytime I talk about trauma, I always want to give this disclaimer. I know that we all have various levels or various degrees of trauma in our past. Some of us um, are maybe farther along in the journey of processing that trauma than others. And so sometimes as we talk about trauma, triggers can happen. It can hit a sore spot for you, maybe a sore spot for your story. And I want to give you permission to take care of you. And so for some people, that looks like maybe they disengage and take a few deep breaths. For some people, they might need to scroll on their phone for a little bit or doodle on the side of their notes. And then for some people, they may choose to walk the hall or go to the bathroom. And so I want to give you full permission to get up, move around, do what you need to do to take care of you. Um, and then the other thing that I always, the other disclaimer I always have to give, I get super excited about talking about this. And when I get really excited, I can talk really fast. <laughs> so if I get to talking way too fast, just raise your hand, tell me to slow down, and I will. I will adjust accordingly. Um, the truth is I'm just super passionate about this, and I just want the whole world to know all about this so that we can help more people. So, but yeah, you don't bother me if you raise your hand. I welcome comments and questions, so um, if there's something that's unclear or you have a question, please feel free to jump in and ask me. All right. So first I want to check in, and there's three questions at the top of your handout, um, and I would love for you to look at those. And maybe just, to, maybe just internally, maybe at your table, um, maybe just internally for the first two. In what ways do you feel prepared to serve women in crisis or women from hard places? And if you want to, you can fill in the answer there. And then maybe what fears do you have as you journey towards serving these women? It can be scary. The unknown is scary. And then finally, what is your greatest need in the time that we have together this evening? And I'd love for you to share that with me. What are you hoping to get out of tonight? What's your greatest need as you're seeking to serve these women? Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Anybody else? Um, words I stand in the moment that felt 
but that I can talk to the way that he thinks we talk to him. Mm-hmm. And I would walk through the same mercy when he talks to me that he would talk to me. Yes. Yes. I see lots of heads nodding. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, hopefully I can cover all three of those questions and more um, so that you will feel better equipped and better prepared to serve the women, the families that you serve. Um, What I want to do is start with kind of a definition of trauma. If you Google trauma, you find all kinds of definitions. The definition has changed over the years. Even just in the last decade, the definition has changed. But kind of the working definition that we'll use tonight is from Dr. Ricky Greenwald, who's one of my trainers in trauma therapy. And he calls it an event that is perceived, that's important, as threatening to a person's life or physical integrity and includes a sense of helplessness along with fear, horror, or disgust. And we've learned a lot about trauma in the last couple of decades because we used to think trauma was just something that was really big. It was maybe something that happened to only a handful of people and nobody ever talked about it. What we've learned since is that um, as we broaden our view of trauma, as we broaden our definition to include something like this, if it's perceived as threatening to a person's life, that means that something that felt like trauma to one person might not have felt as traumatic to another person. And so if they say it was traumatic, then we go with that. It was traumatic for them. Uh, So trauma has really kind of, our our awareness of trauma has broadened. Traditionally, we used to think of trauma as um, assault, you know, or natural disasters, those kind of things. But now we know that even divorce can be trauma, even um, being diagnosed with chronic illness can be trauma. And so um, it's definitely changed things um, for the psychology world, for sure. Uh, you'll look on your page and see that there's many forms of trauma. So these are kind of probably the ones that you would think of, like all forms of abuse. But even a constant state of stress can be considered trauma. Our body processes that as trauma. Um, Living with a household member who has a mental illness or who has been incarcerated, that also can be traumatic. Parent separation. And then witnessing violence. I think that's another one we don't think of. If you have witnessed your parents being violent towards each other, that's traumatic too. Is anybody familiar with the ACEs? Yes, <laughs> some people are. So ACEs stands for, it's A-C-E-S, it stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And there was a study done in the 90s on a list of childhood experiences that could be traumatic. This is not on your sheet. Um, this is bonus for you. Um, but what they learned in this study was basically they, they listed about 20, 16 to 20 um, events that could happen in a child's life that would be traumatic. And what they found in the 90s was that the more checkboxes that you had on this questionnaire, so the more of these events that you've experienced before the age of 18, the more at risk you are for things like mental health issues, physical health issues, um, substance abuse issues and risky behaviors. And so what that really concerned them, obviously. Uh, so what they started to do was look at, well, how can we mitigate the risks? And what they found was it takes one caring adult in a child's life, it takes one caring adult in a young woman's life, right, to start to lessen the risk of those earlier events. 
And so at first the ACEs was very discouraging, but then when they found out it just takes one, it takes one person, that brought much hope. And so that's what I want to share with you guys today. You could be the one, the one caring adult that brings hope to this person. You could be the one that changes their whole family tree because you intervened within a relatively healthy relationship and help them to um, mitigate some of the risks that they have. You could be the reason that they no longer um, abuse substances or that they choose not to. So I think it's important as we're working with people who are in crisis or people who have experienced multiple traumas especially to know how trauma affects us. It affects um, the three Bs. It affects our beliefs is the first blank. That's the way a person thinks, how, how they trust, whether they trust, and whether they can connect with others, how well they can connect with others. Because when hard things happen to us, it changes the way or it affects the way that we think about ourselves. It affects the way we think about God and it affects the way we think about other people or the world around us. And so trauma absolutely affects our beliefs. It affects our biology. We now know, we now have the, um, the science to know that it affects even the physical brain development. It makes it hard for the emotional part of the brain to, uh, to be able to talk to the cognitive part of the brain, the rational part of the brain. Um, it also affects brain chemistry. It absolutely changes the chemistry of the brain which makes it hard for individuals who've had, um, especially multiple traumas, to be able to calm themselves, to be able to self-regulate. And then the third B is behaviors. Trauma puts us at greater risk for emotional problems and dysfunctional behaviors, which we see in children, teens, and adults. Now the good news is the past affects our, the past affects our future, but it doesn't determine our future. And what we, what we did not know when I was in grad school 20 years ago <laughs> is that the brain has plasticity. What we have learned since then is that the brain can change. And Dr. Caroline Leaf, who is a Christian cognitive neuroscientist, is kind of famous for her little quote that says, what's wired in can be wired out. So an example of that would be maybe someone who grew up in a household where they witnessed uh, domestic violence between their parents or someone who themselves was physically abused. They might have, their brain may have learned the habit um, of pulling back from touch or not accepting hugs or jumping, startling when someone reaches out to touch them or kind of brushes against them. What we know with the brain and plasticity is that that response can be rewired, that response can be relearned. And so within the framework of a healthy relationship, a healthy caring adult, the one person, right? Within the framework of one healthy person at least, they can learn new responses when they have experienced safe touch, when they have experienced felt safety and their needs are met. And so God created our brains very much with the ability to change, which is what brings us hope for trauma. And so even for the people that have experienced the worst trauma, there is always hope because the brain can always change given the right environment. What I love about this too Plasticity, the scientists discovering plasticity of the brain really just confirms for them what we know already in the Bible, that, we can, that God tells us that we can renew our minds. And I love that he didn't just tell us to renew our minds, like he created our bodies to be able to renew the mind. So um, I just, I love that he does that for us. Okay, so that is kind of a brief, a brief talk about trauma. 
and the effects that it has on people. There is so much more we could do. I do like a two-day training on just trauma. <laughs> do y'all have any questions so far? None yet? Okay, if you think of something, just let me know. So I wanted to talk about kind of the framework that we're gonna use today um, in talking about connecting and empowering people who have a background of trauma. My favorite framework that I use is TBRI, which stands for Trust-Based Relational Intervention. And it was developed by Dr. Karen Purvis, who is a believer and worked at TCU for a long time. And it was developed out of her work with foster and adoptive children, specifically international adoptive children from hard places. And what I love about TBRI is that, um, what I love about it is that it came out of her desire to, uh, to model for others how Jesus would respond to hurting people. And you'll see that as we talk, you will see this biblically based for sure. Um, in fact, to quote her, because I don't want to get it wrong, <laughs> her principles of empowering, connecting, and correcting are consistent with scripture, and they grew out of her steadfast belief that the grace of God can redeem not only our broken spiritual condition, but also our physical and relational brokenness. And you will see that all through this. So tonight, I'm not going to show you the whole framework for TBRI. We're just going to focus on some of the empowering and some of the connecting principles but um, if you're interested, you can Google this. This is amazing. She does some fascinating work. There's a lot of YouTube videos um, that can help equip you with this. So TBRI has two principles that we're going to discuss, the empower and the connect. Connecting includes things like mindfulness or awareness is another word for that. Um, being aware. So you'll see on your handout, we're going to talk about um, paying attention to what you bring to the table, as well as how you engage with someone and giving voice. And then empowering includes ways that you can set women up for success within their own bodies and their own environments. And so there, it takes two of those, it takes both of those kind of pillars uh, to be able to build a good connection, to create that felt safety so that we can, she can let her guard down and connect. So that's our goal. Our goal is to create connections that disarm fear, that enhance learning and discipleship. Because if she's living in fear or if we're living um, not sure where the money's gonna to come to pay the rent this week, then we're really not in a good frame of mind to be able to learn. And so then whatever you have to share with me in discipleship is probably not going to stick <laughs> because there's so much else going on in my head. So our number one goal is to create connections that disarm fear to enhance learning and discipleship. So everything that I'm gonna share with empowering and connecting is with that goal in mind, disarming fear. Creating connections to disarm fear and enhance learning and discipleship. Mm -hmm. disarm, fear and disarm fear and enhance learning and discipleship. Well, I just put it up there. No worries, I was behind. <laughs> now this is really important to disarm fear because so many people um, from hard places or in crisis or with a history of trauma, they live in perpetual survival mode, which looks like fight, flight, or freeze. So they are constantly looking for the exit. They are constantly looking for, um, trying, trying to figure out where the next meal is coming. They are constantly looking for an out. 
constantly. Their brain is constantly scanning. And so they may be sitting here looking cool, calm, and collected, but on the inside, they're kind of like the duck that's paddling really hard on the bottom, you know, under the, under the water. On the inside, they are panicked all the time. They're living in stress. It's fight, flight, or freeze at all times. They are ready to fight, they're ready to run, or they're going to freeze, which you'll see is kind of shutting down. And so they often have a hard time regulating themselves and often appear to overreact um, to situations. They often, maybe sometimes even have bizarre behaviors that we don't even know where that came from <laughs> because it, it was a trigger for them. Something is not settled for them. So they can't learn if they're operating in survival mode. We can't learn if we're operating in survival mode. So fear must be dis disarmed first. So we need to help them to build trust and to connect. So essentially, we're becoming a healthy attachment for them. And that attachment figure that they can ultimately attach to is their Heavenly Father. So we want to help to open the door by building an attachment with them, a good relationship, a good enough relationship. It doesn't even have to be perfect. Um, so that we can ultimately help them to attach to the Heavenly Father, who is the perfect attachment relationship, and then they can heal. And here's the great news. You don't have to be perfect. To make a difference in someone's life, you just have to be good enough. And even the research shows that. So you can do this. So we're going to start with awareness, or also known as mindfulness. And mindfulness, um, we all need to know what we're bringing to the table. We all need to know what we're bringing. What, what am I bringing to this interaction, this conversation, this meeting from my own history? And it could be experiences with people from other, other races. What am I bringing to the table from my, my previous experience with people from other races or people from other cultures, people from other religions, people from other political reviews, uh, views? What am I bringing to the table from my past that might affect my, my time with this person or my time in this meeting? It could even be a fear of men or a belief that all alcoholics are selfish. But I think it's important for us to explore our past. So awareness is, this is Dr. Karen Purvis saying that we all need to explore areas of loss and painful experiences from our childhood that may be keeping us from joyful, healthy relationships because we cannot lead someone else to a greater level of healing and freedom than we have received ourselves. And so it's important for us to start with awareness and mindfulness. I need to look at my own story. Maybe where are some blind spots that I don't even know I have? I need to really um, dig in prayer with the Lord and ask him, you know, and, and Father, my story, what are parts of my story that might rub up against maybe the story of this person that I'm mentoring? And how can, how can you heal those parts of me so I can show up whole and healed, so I can help to lead her to wholeness and healing? I think, too, it's important to be aware of what you bring to this interaction in your current state. If you're stressed about your own child, who possibly reminds you of this young mother that you're mentoring, then you need to be aware of that. Because you sure don't want to come across as the angry mama that's mad at this, this girl and this poor girl in front of you that has no idea where your anger is coming from. So we want to be aware of our current state, even as we meet with, with each individual that we, we meet with. And the truth is stress and anxiety and overwhelm even seasons of grief and loss don't discount you from this work. You can still do this. It's being aware. It's being mindful. And it's okay to walk into that situation and say, you kind of remind me of my daughter, and I'm kind of mad at her right now. 
<laughs> and I just am giving you a disclaimer. And if I start to go into mommy mode, will you just stop me, right? <laughs> it's okay to do that. But as long as we walk in aware, we're not creating more harm. And then I think it's important to know, too, that people will push our buttons. Whether they're in crisis, whether they have a history of trauma or not. So we need to get into the habit of asking ourselves, why is this a button for me? Why did this irritate me so much? Why did this make me tearful all of a sudden? What happened? What's going on? Where does this, what part of my story does this touch that makes this so tender in my heart or makes this so like a burr under my skin? And so perhaps it triggers a sore spot from your past. And it's important to be fiercely honest with your past. Don't, de don't deny it or ignore it. I did for a long time until I got into this counseling world. Um, and don't downplay it. We all have stuff that we can go back and work on. We all have stuff. We all have triggers. We all have sore spots. Um, you really can't get out of, you can't get into adulthood without having experienced something. <laughs> because parents aren't perfect. They try, but they're not perfect. Even the best parents are not perfect. And even the best parents can't protect us from everything. So we all have something, and it's good for us to be able to look back. So we want to start there. Start within. Start and make sure that we know what those blind spots are. We know what those, those pain points are so that we can heal them uh, or lead them to healing. One resource that is really helpful that I have found over the last probably two or three years, well, two years, I guess, is called Keys to Freedom. And it's a Bible study that is... It is unique. It is unlike any other Bible study. Most Bible studies that we go through, you, you know, they tell you, they ask you a question, and if you read the next paragraph after the blank, you can pretty much fill in the question, right? They fill in the answer. What I have found with this one, you have to seek the Lord in prayer to find the answer. And what I love about it is it kind of follows the same framework I use in counseling with most people. And so it basically is counseling with the Holy Spirit as your counselor. And so it takes you through how to recognize hurts in your life that maybe are unhealed. It takes you through um, even things like forgiveness. What does that look like biblically? There's a prayer sequence that you can pray with the Lord to help you forgive. Um, it's truly a fantastic, a fantastic resource. So I would encourage you to look on Amazon um, if you're interested in maybe um, exploring some hurts and how you can heal those for yourself or for someone else. And I would recommend going through it with a group. There's a lot of people that do this as a book club. Um, so it's... Fabulous. It's truly transformational. So another thing to consider as you're um, increasing awareness about your own hurts and about your own style, I guess, would be to look at your attachment. Um, an attachment is what occurs between a child and a caregiver when the, within the first six years of life. An attachment is basically where we learn the rules of relationship. So asking yourself, what rules of relationship did I learn? Did I learn that most people, for the most part, can be trusted? Or did I learn that there's nobody trustworthy and I'm on my own? I trust no one. And so I think it's important to, to explore your attachment. This is something that you can do um, by looking online at attachment style quizzes and kind of see where you are just kind of as a baseline. Um, this is something you can do by even looking back in your, your history, how you were parented. Maybe even if you are a parent, look at how you parent your kids. You know. That will give you a good clue as to what attachment style you are. We used to think that attachment style was pretty much set for life. What we have learned is that that can change. I'm going to give you a resource for that, too. 
what we know in attachment is that in those early years, especially in the first year of life, that child is learning that when I cry, a nurturing caregiver is going to come and take care of my needs. And so a lot of the women that we serve, a lot of the people that we serve, a lot of people that we sit next to in church um, didn't get that. And so they, um, they may respond differently to some stressors, to some situations, and that's okay because y'all are going to learn how to, how to handle that, how to address that, how to approach them. Hmm. I think it's also interesting to note that the majority of counselors, the majority of uh, medical professions, and the majority of foster and adoptive parents don't have secure attachment. Not fully secure. Secure attachment? Secu well, there's a lot of factors for that, but secure attachment would be that you had a, you had a good enough parent growing up, that you felt that when you, you needed something, they were going to be there to take care of that boo-boo and help you out. What did you say? You said people who are foster parents and adoptive parents. Mm-hmm. Foster parents, adoptive parents, people that go into the counseling profession and the medical profession, they tend to not be as securely attached. And I, what they hypothesize about that is they, they really believe that they want better for others than what they had growing up. So we want better for others than what we had. Yeah. It's not that they have, it's not that they are like disorganized attachment. They're attached. They have, they're able to attach to other people. They're just not the securely attached. Mm-hmm. So it tends to draw those kind of the helping, the helping professions, the volunteer positions kind of tend to draw those of us that maybe aren't as securely attached. But like I said, the good thing is if you recognize that maybe I'm not quite as securely attached as I thought it was, there are resources that you can use to help with that. You can, of course, do counseling, right? But there's also other resources out there, and this is a new one that I have found, and I know Cindy Lee, um, but she has written a Bible study called Anchored, and it's discovering yourself worse, really, in Christ. And what we know is that secure attachment helps us to have self-worth, helps us to feel like we have self-efficacy, like we have a voice. Secure attachment helps us to give care, but also receive care. There's so much about secure attachment that helps us in our everyday relationships. And so if you feel like maybe you could have some work, I feel like probably we all could use some work in attachment, then you might consider a Bible study like this, or you might consider a counselor that can help you um, that can help you with that. Or um, I know so many people that one healthy relationship has helped them to heal their attachment. So having one person, one healthy person in their life that models that healthy attachment for them has made all the difference. I also point out attachment because a lot of the women that we, will, that we serve in crisis who have experienced trauma come from very disorganized attachment histories. And so you'll notice bizarre behaviors, things like they push and pull. So they might say, um, they might make you feel like they don't want you around, but then they can't, they just, you know, they just want to suck the life out of you. You know, it's kind of the push and the pull, like go away, come back, go away, come back. That's a sign of an attachment kind of issue. So you'll see things like that that kind of seem confusing to us sometimes can be an indication that there's something going on with attachment. And so it might be helpful um, to steer them towards something like anchored, the Bible study. Any other questions? Attachment is fascinating. You can explore that more on the internet. Um, 
very fascinating. And then I included this verse. I love it in the message version, but 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5. I just love especially how it talks about um, he walks alongside us through hard times. And that, yes, there's plenty of hard times that come from following Messiah, but no more so than the good times of his healing comfort. And we get a full measure, a full measure of that, too. And if you haven't experienced his healing comfort, the full measure of that, Keys to Freedom is a great place to start. That Bible study can help you with that. Okay, so as we are kind of moving through ways that we can connect with them, we start with mindfulness. We start with being aware of our own stories and what we're bringing to the table. And then we move on to engaging. And so engagement is um, a way, it's, it's the, all the nonverbals. It's the way that we connect without words. And the most important one, I believe, is to match her behavior. And what that looks like is um, if she is sitting down with her legs crossed, you know, with her leg crossed, with her hands in her lap, then I would probably sit down with my legs crossed, my hand in my lap. If I find her sitting in the hallway on the floor, I might sit right next to her in the hallway on the floor with her. If her knees are in her chest, my knees are in my chest. I'm going to kind of match her posture. And the reason that we do that is because it helps you to empathize more. It helps you to start to feel what she feels. And I have a story from this. So I was talking with a young woman probably two years ago, and I was really struggling. I was trying really hard to hear her. I was using all of my best counseling strategies to listen to her, but I just could not connect with her. I couldn't empathize and sit in her. I couldn't feel what she felt. And I noticed that she was playing with a wrist, kind of a, a hair tie from her wrist, and she was just kind of fiddling with that with her fingers. And I realized I have a hair tie on my wrist, so I pull it out. I started fiddling with it. And when that happened, I instantly connected with her. I instantly was able to reflect what I saw her, what I felt her feeling. And so I would encourage you to maybe pay attention to that. Try to model their posture and match their behavior. That can also look like... Um, you know, if, if you're working, if you're serving someone and they love knitting and that's not your thing, maybe that becomes your thing. Or maybe you at least read about it and learn enough about it that you can talk the lingo, you know. Um, if uh, you're going to try to want to enter their world, want to try to enter their world. So matching her behavior. It also looks like your voice and your tone. So if the person that you're meeting with comes in kind of down and sad and tired, you're not going to want to meet them all happy and Jesus loves you, kind of, right? You're going to meet them kind of lower, right? Um, and you'll be amazed when you meet someone at their intensity level. It just, they connect. They see, you see it in their eyes when they connect. We were, um, I was with a teenager, a high school girl, a couple of months ago. And normally I'm pretty calm, pretty, pretty even keeled. But she came and she is like cheerleader voice. She was so excited. And she's normally pretty calm and even keeled. So I amped up my intensity and I, re I responded in kind and she just stopped and she got this twinkle in her eye and she said, you just matched my intensity. And I was like, how do you even know that word? <laughs> and she said, Michelle, that makes me feel so good. And it does. So I would encourage you even to match their intensity. Watch your tone. Is your tone similar to theirs? Um, and also watch your posture from their perspective. Are you big boned and maybe a little taller than they are? Are you, does that look overpowering to them? How can you make yourself feel just a little bit smaller or appear a little bit smaller so that you don't, you don't um, put her on the defense? 
you don't automatically trigger fear. And so look at, as you're, as you're interacting with, with people, especially people from hard places, it's important for us to be able to be aware of how they're perceiving. How are they perceiving me? And how can I make them feel more safe? Remember, because our whole goal is to connect so that we can disarm fear. So how can I make her feel more safe? <laughs> the, connect, the intensity thing kind of reminds me of Proverbs 27, 14, where it says, if a man loudly blesses his neighbor early in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. <laughs> That's just a good reminder that we just need to match, match where they're at. Match where they're at. Even if I had the best quiet time and I cannot wait to tell you all about it, I've got to calm down a little bit and match where you are. So the second part of engaging is healthy touch. And I think in COVID we realized how much we miss touch. Even the non-touchers, even the non-huggers, we all realized how important that is. Now healthy touch can be a little tricky for those of us who've experienced trauma. It's helpful if you ask first. Is it okay if I give you a hug? Is it okay if I put my hand on your shoulder while you cry? And if it's not okay, can I give you a high five? <laughs> you know? So those kind of things. So we want to ask permission first. We don't want to assume that they're huggers. And, and this is one other way that we can, if we do it right, if we ask permission, if we don't invade their space, then we can create safety and disarm fear. Touch is huge. I would even encourage you to incorporate touch maybe into your, your rituals and routines with the people that you serve. Maybe you start every meeting with a hug. You hug everybody. And maybe you stand at the door and you hug everybody on their way out, you know? But I would encourage you to incorporate touch. It's so powerful. Touch truly calms the neurochemistry. And then the next one is eye contact. Eye contact increases our connection. And one thing that's important about eye contact, especially when we're working with people who have a history of trauma or who are in crisis, it's possible that at home, eye contact is not matched with a smile on that face. It's possible that when they look into eyes, they see scolding, they see scowls, they feel shame. And so we want to make sure that even if we're kind of upset with them, <laughs> we can still be upset and have soft eyes. We can still be upset and my face can still communicate their preciousness to them. So eye contact is very important. And then the last one is fun. <laughs> and fun, not all of us are wired to have fun all the time, and that's okay. You can find your own form of fun. We want it to be authentic for you. But playfulness is powerful because play disarms fear. And so if our whole goal is to disarm fear so that we can teach them and disciple them, then we're going to want to find a way to, that we can incorporate fun. And maybe that looks like you make a game out of memorizing scripture, whatever it is that you're working with them. Maybe it looks like you take a break. You see that they're tired. You see that they're kind of, there's a lull in the middle of this. We're going to take a break. We're going to go outside. We're just going to walk. We're going to, you know, just be in nature. Whatever fun looks like for you. Maybe it's sharing a laugh. Maybe it's sending them a funny YouTube video. Um, whatever that works, whatever that looks like for you. But we want to incorporate fun to disarm fear. Any questions so far? And then one very important thing. So the next thing is giving voice. This is very important when we're working with people in crisis because trauma often includes not having a voice. 
not being able to stand up for yourself, not being able to use your words to make the bad things go away, or when you did speak up, the bad things still happened or nobody believed you. So giving voice to someone who's in crisis or someone who has experienced trauma is huge. It's very healing. And when we lose our voice, when our voice is denied, then we start to believe lies like, I don't matter, I'm unimportant, I have no value. And there's very high levels of shame in people with significant trauma histories. So we want to be able to disarm that by giving voice. We are created to connect, and a primary way connection happens is through expressing ourselves to those who will listen, who will understand, and who will respond accordingly. And the trouble is that fear robs individuals of their voice. So we want to be very intentional that in every interaction with people that we give them voice. We want them to have the opportunity to let their voice be heard. So some practical ways that we can do that is to listen when they share with us and to be present with the people that we're with. And I know that sounds very simple, but the truth is most of us are not very good listeners. <laughs> most of us, when somebody is talking to us, we are planning the grocery list. We are waiting for them to take a breath so we can jump in and share what we want to say. <laughs> most of us are not very good listeners. And so being present, some skills for being present would be to lean in Lean forward when they're talking. Lean towards them so that they know that that communicates, I'm interested, I'm all in. Even um, getting rid of distractions. So maybe put your cell phone on silent if you can. Making eye contact. Hearing them through, not interrupting. Maybe even saying, okay, tell me more. What else happened? Making sure that you hear them all the way out. I can't think of anything that communicates love more than that, listening. So many families, everybody's on their screens. <laughs> they eat dinner in front of the screens. They eat dinner in front of the screen, you know, all the things. There's very little listening and eye contact. If we can offer that, that's more than anybody else gave them probably that day. So being present and listening is very powerful. And then allowing, allowing her to have an active role in decision-making is important. So rather than, this might look like giving choices. So rather than, you sit over here and I'm going to sit here today, it might be, would you rather sit here or here? That's one way that you can give a voice, give voice to someone. Maybe it looks like, how would you like to end our time today? Do you want to pray or not pray? Okay. Do you want to pray or do you want me to? Out loud or quiet, you know? You can give choices for anything, really. And so I would encourage you to really give choices, to give her an active role in decision-making. If something comes up and you, um, you, have a, you, you decide to help in, help in a different way, then I would ask her, what do you think would be the best way that you would receive help in this way? What do you think would be your number one priority? What's your greatest need? What's the best way I could help? And even if she doesn't have ideas, at least you've extended the opportunity for her to be able to share that if she did. And then finally, 
I would um, encourage you to encourage them to use their words, use their voice rather than behaviors. I know that one of the most puzzling things, especially with people who come from complex trauma, is that some of their behaviors can be very aggressive, very abrasive. Some of their behaviors can be very bizarre. Some of our behaviors can be bizarre, given any day, right? <laughs> given the right set of circumstances, that we can all be that way. Um, and so I would encourage you to um, seek the need behind the behavior. If you notice that someone is isolating or maybe shutting down, if you notice that someone maybe is ignoring you or giving you the cold shoulder, it's possible that they're just going back into childhood things that they learned in childhood. This is how they related to their mom or their grandmother. Um, maybe it's something that you said or did that triggered them into that spot again. Um, and so I would encourage you um, to encourage them to use their words. And so some practical ways that that could look like could be, I noticed that you sat by yourself during group. And I wonder what you need today. Do you need a hug? Or do you need someone to listen to you? And so those are ways that you can empower people to use their words. I would encourage you here too <laughs> to be patient. There's two types of, basically two types of people. There's those of us that are airplanes that like to circle the airport for a long time before we land. And then there are others of us that we need an emergency landing right now and we've got to find the solution to this problem right this minute. And we aren't going anywhere until it happens. I would encourage you, trauma, trauma makes Thinking through processes, thinking through questions, thinking through answers, kind of difficult. There's a lot to sort through. And when this side of my brain doesn't connect well with this side of my brain or communicate well with this side of my brain, there's a lot I have to go through to get there. And so I would encourage you to recognize that maybe the person you're sitting across from is one of those that circles the airport a while before they're ready to land the plane, and that's okay. And so one thing you could do there is maybe I'll give you some time to think or process this, but I'm gonna be sitting right here when you're ready to talk. So giving them space to use their voice when they're able to, when they're ready. I'm definitely one of those that circles the airport lots of times. I appreciate people giving me space to think. Any questions on giving voice? Okay, the next one is empower. And I know this one sounds kind of silly at first, but I think you'll understand as we get moving. So empowering someone is really um, setting, themselves, setting them up for success within their bodies and within their environment. So I wanna make sure that I am doing everything I can, first of all, to disarm fear, and empowering kind of goes along with that, and I'll show you how. So first of all, we want to know that learning and discipleship can't take place if immediate needs are not met. So, if I'm worried about where I'm gonna get my next meal or how I'm gonna pay rent this week, if I'm worried about anything safety-wise, clothing-wise, then I don't have the bandwidth to be able to listen to what you have to say today. And so I would encourage you to, that should be your first priority. Hopefully, they come with all those resources when they come to you, but if not, I would encourage you to have a list of resources that you can refer people to and, um, and help them, help them find those immediate needs. That's your number one priority. And then the next one that's very helpful along those lines with that one is considering helping people to improve their relationships or their communication at home because that will reduce stress. So if every time they're leaving me, they're going home and getting into a fight again, then maybe I can help with that. 
maybe I can just give the airplane analogy, for instance, you know, to help them out at home a little bit. Um, but whatever I can do to help kind of reduce stress even is very important. All right, the next one is snacks and hydration. So imagine the last time that you were really hungry. Really, really hungry. And how did it show in your mood? Or even in your motivation? Or your willingness to learn? Maybe even your openness to others? One thing that we've learned is that trauma makes us more sensitive to blood sugar drops. And so when that happens, there we are, hangry. Or we shut down. So it's important to make sure that you consider having providing snacks and water for people that you serve in your ministries. The same thing is true with hydration. By the time we feel thirst, We've already, many of us have already experienced a 10% decrease in cognition, cognitive decline. So we want to make sure that people are hydrated. The other reason for that is because there's a neurotransmitter in the brain that is very sensitive to dehydration. And at just the slightest bit of dehydration, it triggers anger and aggression in people who are sensitive to that. So a glass of water is very helpful for lots of things. <laughs> So don't overlook the importance of providing snacks and water. You want to make sure that you're providing a protein and a healthy carb. Just assume that probably they haven't eaten in the last couple of hours and they could use a snack. Maybe even consider carrying snacks for yourself. <laughs> and then consider providing fidgets. Because when, I, when you live in survival mode, you're very fidgety. There's lots of extra energy. There's lots of that. And so consider providing fidgets. And it could be, um, it could be as simple as just a little squeezy ball. You can look on Amazon and find some of those. They also now have fidget bracelets, fidget rings, all the things. But consider providing those to kind of help her to feel more safe. And then create felt safety with routines and consistency. This is so important. If I'm in crisis especially, I really can't, I really can't think about changing schedules. I can't think if we move from Tuesday to Wednesday, if we move from 3 o'clock to 5.30. Like, that's going to be lost on me. And if you think back, if you have children, think back to newborn days. There were so many days in newborn days that I got to 4 o'clock and I thought, I don't think I've eaten today. And I'm not sure I've had a drink of water all day and here I am nursing this child. Um, so think back to survival mode. It's important to have routines and consistency. So that could look like um, letting them know what's coming next, giving them a schedule so they know what's coming next. So here's a schedule of our next six weeks that we'll be together. Here's what you can expect. And here's kind of a, a flow. This is kind of the general flow of our meetings when we get together. Um, it could even look like rituals that you do before and after. Here's how we open our session. We start with a hug, you know, or here's how we end. We always say this phrase. Um, whatever it is, but those are very comforting to all of us, really. But especially to someone whose brain feels like a pinball machine, it's very helpful. And then I would encourage you to slow down and pause. So after asking a question, I want you to slow down and pause and listen and give people time to catch up to what you're asking them to do. Because if my brain is buzzy, or I feel like a pinball machine is in my head, or if I feel like I'm having to process the words that you said, but also the tone that you used, that's kind of triggering me to like when my mom, you know, my mom in the kitchen the other day, then I've got a lot to wade through before I can get to the answer to give to you. So I would encourage you just to slow down and pause to let them, go, to let them answer. 
And something you could say is you seem to be thinking about the answer to this question for a while. I'm wondering if you're just trying, um, if you're just needing more time to process or if you need me to repeat it or rephrase it. So that's kind of a respectful way to kind of check in, make sure they're still with you. All right, and then we want to offer choices or a menu of options. And this could look like, um, you might ask them, how are you feeling about being pregnant? You know, and if they don't answer, then you might offer a menu of options. Well, other girls have told me that they feel terrified or they feel excited or they feel scared or they feel angry. Does any of that sound like something you feel? And then that does lots of things. That kind of normalizes it. So if she knows that she picks anything from that menu, if she feels any or all of those things, it's a normal feeling because this lady just gave me the options. Um, but it also helps her to not have to weed through all the feelings that are in her head <laughs> to figure it out. You've given her some easy, low, low fruit ones, low hanging fruit ones she can pick. This also gives voice, it disarms fear, which is our whole goal, and it helps, it helps us to gain a sense of control or autonomy. It reduces shame, because the way I feel is okay, and the way I feel was in that menu, so I'm okay. And then finally, as you're considering working with ways you can serve women and in a way that connects with them, I would encourage you to consider a perspective shift. A lot of times we view people through our own lens, through our own story, our own experiences. And I think it's important for us um, to maybe consider a different way of seeing things. Maybe consider viewing the people that you work with, as, and really the people in your family, the people everywhere, <laughs> as having a hard time versus giving you a hard time. So is it possible that she's angry with you, she, but it's not you, she's having a hard time. She's not giving you a hard time, she's not being irate with you because she's trying to make your day miserable. Is it possible she's struggling to keep it together inside? Is it possible she shows up late for every meeting because she can't get the bus schedule right? And it's not rebellion. It's not that she doesn't care. It's just that she can't get there. So I would encourage you to shift that perspective when you start to feel like, whew, this lady's giving me a hard time. Well, what's going on in her story? What does she need? What is the need behind the behavior? And how is she having a hard time? And how can I help her meet that need? Any questions so far? I want to close with um, I want to close close with this quote and then a final thought. This quote comes from Diane Langberg, who's a clinical psychologist and a believer, and has written this book here at the bottom. It says, "Trauma is perhaps the greatest mission field of the 21st century." I wholeheartedly agree with that. Wholeheartedly agree. I'm so thankful that y'all are here um, and open open for this whole like six week um, process to learn ways to relate and connect, to learn ways to, um, to minister to in ways that are received well and not received as shame. And I hope, um, I hope that this training has opened your eyes to the ways that trauma impacts people, the way it impacts our brains, our bodies, our behaviors, our beliefs, and I would hope that we would seek to understand the need behind the behavior 
that we experience with people in our lives, people we live with, people we don't live with. And I also hope that we would recognize the profound impact that we can have as one single person offering a good enough relationship to, to another person, a hurting person. And finally, I hope that you feel empowered to utilize practical strategies to connect with and empower the women that you serve and the others that you serve. So I'm curious, um, before we get to the question at the bottom of your handout, I'm just curious, what surprised you about trauma or maybe even connecting or what stood out to you most as you look back over your notes? I think what you said at the beginning about trauma can be anything. I mean, what might be trauma to one person? I always thought it could be something really horrible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good, yes. If it's perceived as traumatic, if it's perceived as too overwhelming, too much, for me, then it's trauma. Mm -hmm. And it's okay, you can go in as you are and growing, paying attention, paying attention to what's going on inside. Anybody else? And if she's open to it, absolutely. Mm -hmm. If we have to do it anyway, we may as well make it fun. <laughs> may as well make it fun. I love that you see that because it is, I mean, on paper, this looks very simple. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh huh. They have no practice. Mm -hmm. So that's where the menu of options comes in. Very helpful. Some people would say this or this. Which one feels best to you? Yeah. And I think a lot of times it's important for us. That's kind of the having a hard time versus giving a hard time. Because sometimes we see that as, especially when it comes with people younger than us, teenagers, or, you know, we see that as rebellion. Well, they're just not, they're just, or they're non-compliance. And the truth is, it's probably overwhelm. The fight, flight, or freeze is going on in their head right now. And they just need a minute. They need a menu. There's more than just sad. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, I think that's, that's a great point. And I think sometimes we forget to use that with adults because we think it's mostly for children. It's very helpful. So hopefully you can walk away with at least two strategies that you can use as you serve the people in your home, the people in your community. Um, yeah, hope this was helpful. Thank you so much. You're welcome.